Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you guys. Uh, Ventura Campus will be joining us for this message. Let's let them know that we love them, that we're with them. Come on. And let's open up in our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. We are nearing our, the end of our study of 1 John. Just a few weeks left. 1 John chapter 5. Um, it is such a crazy time in the world right now. Right? Like we talked about what's going on in, in, in Liberia, Africa with the Ebola break. Isn't it crazy that there's only 50 doctors left in the nation? One of them's from our church. Like, that's just crazy. Please, brothers and sisters, don't forget to intercede for that situation. And then if you've been paying attention to the news, what's going on in Iraq and Syria and the surrounding regions and, and the news tells us Christians being beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ at the hand of these uh, extreme Muslims. This is radical stuff. The news was reporting that children are being beheaded for their faith in Jesus Christ. Like That is so radical. What's going on in Israel, the war there. I mean, Russia, Ukraine, planes getting shot out of the sky like... The world feels a little bit crazy right now. This is an important time to be attentive and obedient, watchful and prayerful. We're told in the book of Hebrews to remember our Christian brothers and sisters who are being persecuted around the world as though we are with them because they are part of us. They're our bodies. So be praying for Christians in Iraq right now. The world just feels like such a gnarly place. And you know, when, when the world gets gnarly, we, we start to wonder, is this the end? Because Jesus said in Matthew 24 that near the end, you'd be hearing about wars and rumors of wars. And it's, it's like, there's many being rumored right now, right? Russia, Ukraine, and Israel, and us, and Iraq, and the general assassinated in Afghanistan. Jesus said that there would be earthquakes and pestilences in various places, the outbreak of Ebola. And Jesus said that in the end, Christians would be delivered to be killed. And that's happening right now in Iraq. This is a time to be attentive. So in light of that, um, when we finish the book of 1 John, sometime in the book of September, we will be studying the book of Revelation together. We just want to get our eyes on Jesus and uh, what the word has to say about his return and what things may look like in the last days. So we're just going to settle into the book of Revelation for a while. Maybe we'll be in that thing till Jesus comes back. <laughs> so sometime in September, the book of Revelation. But right now we're in 1 John chapter 5. We have an interesting text about Jesus in front of us. The title of the sermon is Water, Blood, and Spirit. Sounds so creepy, but it's from the text. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Let's read it and then pray. It says in verse 6, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. 
For there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has a witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. This is God's word, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is pure, unadulterated, wonderful, powerful, living, active truth. And it comforts us in times like this. We're, we're told in your word today that God has witnessed, testified concerning Jesus Christ, that he is the only unique son of God, the only savior of the world, and that God has borne great witness of this to the world, wanting many to be saved. And when that's being challenged in our world in so many ways and so much seems unsure, your word is a great comfort to us, but your word also confronts us this morning. For if these things are true about Jesus, then he deserves all of our attention all of our allegiance, the fullness of our lives and our obedience, that our lives are well spent when we spend them on the cause of the gospel and the work of Christ around the world. We thank you again for the Fankhausers, for their commitment, Jesus, to your mission. We pray a sustaining again of grace of John as he's on the front lines of radical disease. Thank you that he has not counted his life dear unto himself but he's willing to give it for others in your service. Lord, that we would be such people. And we think of our brothers and sisters in Iraq who, because they will not deny Jesus, are being physically exterminated. Oh, Lord, what can we say about such things? We can only ask for your help. We can only ask for your strength upon those families. We can only ask that you would push back the forces of darkness. And that you would truly cause us to think as brothers and sisters of ours are dying for their faith in you around the world that we who are safe would at least be willing to live for you in this world. So speak to us in your word. Comfort us, confront us, encourage us. Thank you, Lord, that your word tells us that you are coming again. We look forward to the day. We say, Maranatha, come soon, Lord. But until you come, help us to be faithful to your word, to your cause, to one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this text is about God's witness concerning his son, Jesus Christ. God's testimony, the evidence provided by God that Jesus truly is the only unique son of God, the savior of the world. It is God's testimony about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. 
And it's incredibly important for us who live in a pluralistic society where there's believed to be many different truths, a relativistic society where what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me, culture would say. And where we live in a world where the truth of Jesus Christ is radically, even violently, morbidly confronted, challenged, sought to be exterminated in certain ways. And yet we have the word of God that says God himself has testified to the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's what the text is speaking to us about. Again, in verse six, it says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. The text is saying that God has given us witness about Jesus through the water, the blood, and the spirit. What are these things? What is the text referring to? And how do they testify about Jesus being the only unique savior of the world? Well, first we look at the water. It says the water testifies about Jesus. The witness of the water. The water refers to the baptism of Jesus Christ. There's all sorts of imagery in the Bible about water. It could be a lot of different things, but it appears to be that John the Apostle is referring to the baptism of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And you'll remember that he was baptized in order to identify with sinners, Jesus was baptized to identify with sinners. He himself was without sin, but he came to save those who were with sin. And in seeking to identify with sinful humanity because he would, after all, be our substitute, he was baptized by John the Baptist to identify with sinful Israel at the time and ultimately the world. And in a wonderful way, his baptism showed Jesus's identity to be unique. The water is all about the identity of Jesus Christ. Let's see the witness of the water in the gospel of Mark. Turn there. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, the witness of the water. We'll read a few verses here and talk about the witness of the water, the baptism of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter one, starting in verse one, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse four, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice that John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, prophesied about some 700 years prior that before Messiah would come, there would be one who was crying in the wilderness, make straight the way, the Messiah is coming. 
And what John the Baptist do was, did, excuse me, was bring to remembrance the sins of Israel, reminded them that they had sins that needed to be dealt with, was calling them to repentance to prepare for Messiah who would ultimately pay the price for their sins and our sins upon the cross. So that's what John the Baptist is doing, the prophesied about forerunner of the Messiah. Then it says in verse five, and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they are being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was a trippy guy, <laughs> right? Just camel hair, honey and bugs hanging out of his mouth. Just <laughs> trippy dude. Verse seven, and he was preaching, saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he, the one who is coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened And the spirit like a dove descending upon Jesus and a voice came out of the heavens saying, thou art my beloved son in thee I am well pleased. Here we have the testimony, the witness of the water. God's provision to testify about the identity of Jesus Christ. And what we see in the text is that God provided supernatural witness God provided supernatural supernatural witness. It says there in verse 10 that the heavens opened. Literally, the sky was torn apart. In some way that is undiscernible to us, those who were there in the Jordan that day looked up and saw the sky ripped apart. I don't know what that looked like, but it was obviously supernatural. Jesus just baptized. The sky is ripped open. The spirit descends like a dove in some visible, tangible way. The spirit comes down on Jesus. Israel not missing the point. John having spoken of it. And then there comes the voice of God from heaven. Israel hadn't heard the voice of God in hundreds of years. And it comes thundering. And the first thing that God has to say is concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. He says, this is my beloved son. In him, I am well pleased. Can you imagine being there that moment? I don't know how anybody in Israel missed it. The sky's ripped open, the Holy Spirit comes down and the voice of the father thunders. This is my beloved son. My only unique son. In him, I am well pleased. He has the approval of the father. Supernatural witness of God concerning Jesus. The water testifies to who he is, the baptism. And then there was the corresponding witness of humanity. In John's gospel, we hear that John on this day, when he saw Jesus and the crowds were gathered there on the Jordan, said when he saw Jesus, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there was a witness from heaven, the supernatural witness, and there was a witness from humanity. And Israel got it when John said, behold, the lamb. They were slaughtering lambs in the temple every day. They knew that they were for the forgiveness of sins, but they looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come and ultimately deal with it. And John says, here's the one we've all been waiting for. Jesus, the lamb of God, the sacrifice of God, who would pay the price for sins, takes away, therefore, the sins of the world. And then there was not only the supernatural witness and the corresponding witness of humanity, but there was the subsequent evidence. From this time forward, people began to follow Jesus Christ. And this was the beginning of his ministry of miracles and deliverance and power and compassion and mercy and feeding and saving. So we had the subsequent evidence. So the witness of the water is the event of the baptism of Jesus Christ where the sky ripped open, the spirit descended and the father spoke and humanity corresponded. This is the lamb of God. And many began to follow Jesus at that time. That's a profound witness. For whom else do you know that the sky was ripped open and the spirit came down and God's voice thundered into the time-space continuum? Who else? Jesus. And then we have the witness of the blood. The witness of the blood. Now this refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is more of the work of the father to identify who his son is refers to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ who was crucified for sinners. And the witness of the blood is this. It showed Jesus' work to be unique. The cross showed Jesus' work to be unique. His baptism was where his identity was shown to be unique, the only unique son of God in whom God was pleased, the lamb of God. The cross is where his work is shown to be unique, that nobody else in the history of the world has done what Christ has done in his death and resurrection. So let's see the witness of the blood in Matthew 27. Just back a couple pages from where you are. Matthew 27. Uh, We'll start around, well, we'll start in verse 50. Matthew 27, 50. Jesus at the end on the cross here. It says in Matthew 27, 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after Christ's resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Here we have the witness of the blood. Again, we have the supernatural witness of God. In verse 45, we're told now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Jesus was crucified there 
with two common thieves. It was not an uncommon thing that people were crucified in Israel during Roman occupation. That was not uncommon at all. And there's Jesus, and many thought him just to be another political activist. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the day, the lights are turned out. At this point, you start to wonder. And it goes dark for three hours. And then this one hanging upon a cross lets out a cry, yields up his spirit. And at that very moment, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The veil in the temple was that veil that separated the part of the temple where people had access to the Holy of Holies, the inner place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's spirit had once dwelt, where his presence once was. And it spoke of separation between a holy God and sinful people. Nobody ever got to go in. It was this big, thick, huge veil in this giant temple. Nobody in Israel ever got to go into the presence of God except for the high priest once a year after very careful sacrifice. To sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the rest of the nation. It spoke of separation between a holy God and a fallen people. This has always been the condition since humanity sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they attempt to do? To hide from God. And they found themselves in shame because there was this realization that he is holy and we aren't. And though God would begin to pursue them, there was always, and God would ratify and testify to the fact there was always a separation between God and his people because of his holiness and their persistent sin. And at the moment Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom as if God himself reached down and opened it up. What was that speaking? There is no more separation because the price of sins has been paid for on the cross. Jesus' body was like that veil. It was broken for us. And his blood paid the price for us that we wouldn't have to be separated from God anymore. But Christ now made a way. So imagine just being a Jewish priest in the temple that day and it's been dark for a few hours and suddenly the curtain, this huge thing is ripped from top to bottom. And then there's an earthquake. Now it's shaking And the rocks split open. And then people are crawling out of the grave. This is crazy times here. This is supernatural witness of God concerning his son. This was not some other crucifixion. This was not some political activist or religious leader or good man dying in Israel. This was the God man the only unique son of God doing what nobody else could ever or would ever do, giving himself to pay the price for our sins, testified to supernaturally by God in the darkness, the tearing of the veil, the earthquake, the splitting of the rock, the resurrection of the dead. And then there was, just as there was at the witness, the corresponding response of humanity. Did you see that in verse 54? It says, the centurion who was there, who witnessed all these things said, truly, this was the son of God. I don't know how anyone in Israel missed it. 
After the witness of the water, and now three years later, the witness of the blood, those who were closest, the centurion, who probably drove the nails into his hands, said, truly, this was the Son of God. And just as there was subsequent evidence now to the witness of the, as there was subsequent evidence to the witness of the water and people following Jesus in his ministry, now there's subsequent evidence to the witness of the blood, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look in verse 20, or chapter 28, verse 1. Chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. I mean, what more do you need? What more could God do? Prophesied hundreds of years in advance that the Messiah would come. And so that nobody misses it, he'll send a forerunner, John the Baptist, who will tell everybody, this is the time, he's coming. And so that nobody witnesses it when he's around a large crowd at the Jordan, I'll rip open the heavens for a moment, throw my spirit down upon him, and I'll speak a voice that Israel hasn't heard in centuries testifying of the identity of Jesus Christ. And then I'll testify of his work by doing what no one else has ever been able to offer to do, give themselves as a sacrifice for the many. And as the ultimate testimony to the validity of that work, I will raise my son from the dead in glory. This is a testimony of God concerning his son. Who else? Tell me, who else? And all the history of the world has pulled off their own death and resurrection from the dead. Who else has offered to pay the price for our sins and was able to do it because they themselves were without sin, having been identified as the only son of God, died in our place and rose from the dead in glory. Only Jesus Christ. This is the witness of the blood. And then we have finally the witness of the spirit. The witness of the water refers to Jesus' baptism and his identity. The witness of the blood refers to his cross and resurrection and his work. And the witness of the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit who applies the identity and the work of Christ to our lives. He is the one who regenerates us when we repent of our sins so that we might be born again. And he is the one who fills us in our lives that we might be witnesses, followers of Jesus Christ. So the witness of the Spirit shows Jesus' church to be unique, right? The witness of the water showed Jesus' identity to be unique. This is my beloved son. The witness of the blood showed his work to be unique. The blood, the cross, the resurrection, the provision for salvation, And the witness of the Spirit shows his church to be unique. Men and women who have been born again, made brand new, 
regenerated through faith and repentance by the work of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit to do the work of Christ in the world. Turn to Acts chapter 1 and we'll look at this. Acts chapter 1. I'll tell you what, I don't, you, I don't hear that many Bible pages turning. You, when we get to the book of Revelation, you're going to need a Bible. Okay, you're going to come to church, bring a Bible. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Luke writing says about the gospel of Luke, the first account I composed, Theophilus, that's who he's writing to, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, the ascension, after he had been by the Holy Spirit given orders, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive, speaking of his resurrection, after his suffering, speaking of the cross, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you, speaking of believers, shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The witness of the Spirit. Jesus said that he would send the Spirit who regenerates us and fills us to live life on mission for God. And he would send it on the day of Pentecost, the birthday of the church. So we see it in chapter 2, verse 1. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So here we have the supernatural witness of God, again, this time concerning the Spirit. They're gathered on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on the church, and there are these supernatural manifestations. There's a rushing of wind. There's something that looks like a tongue of fire on each one of them. How strange. And then they begin to speak in other languages. And if you continue to read in the text, it says that there were people gathered in Jerusalem that time from all the surrounding nations, and they all heard the apostles speaking in their own language, declaring the wonderful work of God. This was supernatural. I don't know how anybody missed it. It's like that day when the sky ripped open and the spirit came down and God spoke. It's like that day when the sky went dark and the curtain was torn and the rocks split and the earth shook and the dead were raised and then Christ was raised. Now there's the rushing of the wind and the flame sitting on the people and the different tongues. I, the supernatural witness of God. Who else? 
the supernatural witness of God to the identity of Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. And then we have the corresponding human witness. And that is Peter preaching after having been filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter. Remember Peter? Peter who denied Jesus the day he was crucified? Peter who in fear when a little girl said to him, were you with Jesus? Said, no, not me. Denied Jesus three times, fearing for his own life, ashamed to be identified with Jesus who was condemned to death. That same Peter, having now been filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up in front of all of Israel, the same ones who had crucified Jesus. And he preaches to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of this risen one. And then the subsequent evidence, if we look at verses 40 and 41, Acts 2, 40 and 41, it says, And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, the subsequent evidence. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people saved that day when Peter preaches. Gosh, not everybody was missing it. Peter preached a risen Lord in the same little town where he was crucified. If he wasn't risen, if there was a body, if there was a grave with a body in it, anybody could have gone and said, Peter, you're lying. It was becoming evident that this one who had come was truly the son of God. That what he had done on the cross was truly died an atoning death because he rose from the dead. And now the Spirit's been poured out and the church is born. And the church is shown to be unique because they were followers of Jesus Christ. This is a witness of the water and the blood and the Spirit. Now going back to 1 John to pick up in the text, 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter five, verse nine now. We'll look at verse eight real quick. For there are three that bear witness. We just talked about them, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement, right? About the identity and the work and the following of Jesus Christ. Then it says in verse nine, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, right? If we ever believe what people say, then we ought to believe what God is saying about his son. You may be here today and you're wondering about Jesus Christ. Don't believe me. Listen to the witness of God. Look what the word says. Look what God has done in his love for you and his pursuit of you and his desire to forgive your sins through his son, Jesus Christ. Look what God has done. If we receive the witness of men, if we ever listen to people, the witness of God is greater. And the witness of God is this. He is born witness concerning his son. What God has to say to humanity is concerning Jesus. Jesus is always the main issue. We get caught up in so many other issues. We're going to study the book of Revelation soon and there's going to be all sorts of exciting, mysterious, crazy stuff. But the main point of the book of Revelation is Jesus his glory and his coming, his work and his identity, 
his church and the restoration of all things. And the main point of 1 John is Jesus. And the main point of the water was his identity, the identity of Jesus and the blood, the work of Jesus and the spirit. Again, the identity in the church, the following of Jesus in the world. What God has said to humanity is, you're separated from me because I'm holy and you're not. You sinned against me and I'm righteous, so I will hold you accountable for your sins. But I love you more than you could ever possibly fathom. So I will send my son. I'll confirm his identity at his baptism. I will give him on the cross for you. I will confirm the validity of his sacrifice at his resurrection. And I will call you to repent of your sins and follow him and live brand new life. And I will confirm that by giving you my Holy Spirit. This is what God is saying to humanity. It's about his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, the one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God out to be a liar because he's not believed in the witness that God is born concerning his son. Discounts the water, the blood, and the spirit. The witness is this, verse 11, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. This is the witness that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's what the text is saying. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The problem is sin. The book of Romans says that the wages of sin or what sin earns us is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. By repenting of our sins, turning from them, and putting our faith, our trust, in who God says Jesus is and what he's done and salvation that's brought to us by the work of the Spirit. And those who believe this have this testimony, this witness in themselves about the water, right? Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ believe that Jesus came to rescue me. And just as the water had to do with his identity, it has to do with my identity. I was a sinner, but I've been brought a savior. The blood testifies for us that Jesus has made a way for me. It's about his work. I had a great debt to pay, a debt of sin before God, but the cross has paid the price for me. In the spirit, Jesus has made me his own child and witness that I was once a rebel. Now I'm a follower. And we have been given eternal life. Now, To enter into eternal life, Jesus said in John chapter three, you must be born again. Listen to me very carefully, Carpenteria Campus. Listen to me. Ventura Campus, speaking to Carpenteria for a minute. We took a survey a while ago, an informal anonymous survey, right? And one of the questions that we ask is, how long have you been a Christian? Don't react to this because I don't want you to embarrass anybody or shame anybody, but over 25% of you said, I have been a Christian since I was born, since birth, my whole life. I I, I must, I must deal with that. Do you understand that's not possible? Christianity is not a culture that you're born into. Christianity is not an ethnicity that you're born into. 
Christianity isn't a, a town that you're born into. You can't say, I've been a Christian since birth or my whole life. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. He said, how can one be born again? Do I climb back into the womb and come out again? He says, no. Everyone is born physically one time. You have to be born of the Spirit. We have to be made spiritually alive by repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says we're born again. And that we are made new creatures. Our sins are washed away. Our debt before God is done away with forever. And the sin nature that once dominated us is defeated. And we're brand new creatures. We're now alive to God. There is a salvation event where you are born again. So I worry as someone who loves you, who's giving his life to serve you. I, I love you. Those of you that said that, I've been a Christian my whole life. I, I, I'm compelled because of the truth of the word of God to say, are you sure you're a Christian? Maybe you didn't mean that, that's fine. But over a quarter of you, we're not able to identify a born again event. Just because you're born into a Christian family or your grandma was a Christian or your parents were strong Christians does not make you saved. You must repent of your sins at an age where you're cognizant and able to do so and put your faith in Jesus Christ and be born again. And then there must be evidence in our lives that we're born again, that we're alive to God, that we love God, that we experience his love, that we want to follow him and we want to obey him. This is the witness of God concerning his son, that God has given us eternal life and eternal life is in his son. You cannot be born into eternal life. You must be born again. Is that clear? Okay, nobody should ever say, I've been a Christian since birth unless you were talking about the new birth. So it's very possible that a large percent of us needs to get saved. That's a good thing. That's what it's all about. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the text is talking about. And God has given us ample evidence that the only way to deal with our sins is through the person of Jesus Christ. And when we do this then, the Spirit is always witnessing about Christ in our lives. Look at God's witness in the Christian through the Holy Spirit. Let's just run through some verses here. God's witness in the Christian through the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians says, the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit, the gospel message. The Spirit reveals to us the truth of it. Romans chapter eight. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we then become children of God. We then become children of God. And the Spirit is witnessing from God, testifying in our hearts, I am God's son. I am God's daughter. Great comfort in moments of great failure. Next, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We understand that it can be difficult in this life. And sometimes we fail so greatly or we wonder or such horrible things happen to us. We wonder, is God really with me? 
I can't tell you the times that I've thought that. And I'm so thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who bears witness with our spirit is telling us continually, you are a child of God through your repentance and faith placed in Jesus Christ. Next, Romans 15, 13 says about the believer, you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Confident hope in strange days and difficult times and scary circumstances the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Next. Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And then Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. He prays that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that, okay, so that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. That's a continual work of the spirit in the life of the believer always testifying about Jesus in our lives. Because what we are is followers of Jesus and this life is difficult and there's challenges and there's opposition and there's questions. And so we need the continual work of the Holy Spirit to strengthen, to confirm, to establish, to pour out God's love and to propel us into the world on mission. You are not on this earth to make money. You are not on this earth to merely make friends. You are not only on this earth to surf. (laughs) If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are still on this earth to bring glory to his name through your life, to be witnesses for him. That doesn't mean that we won't make money. That doesn't mean that we won't have friends. That doesn't mean that we won't surf, thank you, Jesus. It does mean that our lives are bigger than our lives. They belong to God. And the Spirit is in us, convincing us of that truth and propelling us into the world on mission with Him. Look at the witness of the Spirit in the world. The witness of the Spirit in the world. John 16, 8, Jesus says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is always working to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment about Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said in John chapter 15, when the helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. The spirit is in the world testifying about Jesus and you, his followers, will testify also because you've been with me. The call to the Christian life is a call to partnership with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working in your family, at your school, with your friends, in your workplace, with your neighbors, to convince them of what the water and the blood speak of, the identity and the work of Jesus Christ, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. And that's what we're called to be engaged in. Because you're either in or out. That's what it says in verse 12 of our text, last verse. He who has the Son has life. 
He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Speaking of eternal life. I'm not going to apologize for what God has done. God has made a way. God has witnessed in ample ways to the way which he has provided in Jesus Christ. I know the world says and wants there to be many ways. God has given us the way in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you have the son, that means you've repented of your sins and put your trust in him. Not that you just believe in who he is, but you put your trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, then you have eternal life. It's a quality of life now, and it's life after death. And if you don't, if you refuse the witness of God concerning his son, and you refuse to repent of your sins and believe what Jesus did for you on the cross, then the Bible says you don't have eternal life. That you won't spend eternity in heaven. This is serious, serious stuff. That's why we give our lives for the cause of the gospel. That's why we must live for the gospel which is bigger than us. That's why it can't just be about the money. It can't just be about the influence. It can't just be about the stuff. It can't just be about the fun. It's got to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those things are part of it, but we've got to live for Jesus Christ. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son, verse 10 said. You know, the main issue on planet earth is who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. And it doesn't always feel life and death to us, but it's life and death in Iraq right now. The book of John, which we're almost finished with, a couple more weeks, was written because John knew this was life or death stuff and people were getting Jesus wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, you get life wrong. You get eternity wrong. And we've spoken of openly, because we must, about all the errors concerning Jesus. We've talked about the misunderstandings in the new age and the cults and other religions. I want us to think about our brothers and sisters in Iraq and the identity of Jesus as I read to you a passage from the Quran. What the Quran has to say about Jesus. It says about those who claim that Jesus is the Son of God. This is in Surah 19, starting in verse 88. It says, they say, believers in Jesus, that Allah most gracious has begotten a son. Indeed, you have put forth a most monstrous thing. As if the skies are ready to burst and the earth to split asunder and the mountains to fall down in utter ruin, that they should invoke a son for Allah most gracious. For it is not consonant with the majesty of Allah most gracious that he should beget a son. I mean, that, that's a direct attack on the witness of God concerning Jesus Christ. And so here's what the world wants to say. All religions basically teach the same thing. That just isn't true. Christianity teaches one thing, 
that Jesus Christ is the only savior of the world who gave his life for us and we must repent of our sins, put our faith in him and follow him. It says one thing, Jesus. All religions do not say the same thing. Islam says God has no son. And some, not all, some are so serious about that, they're beheading people today who say God has a son. This particular Quran has some commentary and it says about that passage, the belief in Allah begetting a son is not a question of words or a speculative thought. It's a stupendous blasphemy against Allah. It lowers Allah to the level of an animal. If combined with the doctrine of vicarious atonement, the cross, it amounts to a negation of Allah's justice and man's personal responsibility. It is destructive to all moral and spiritual order and is condemned in the strongest possible terms. All religions don't teach the same thing. We're not all talking about the same God. Those are two very different things. And it may not seem that urgent to you, but it's urgent in Iraq today. It should be urgent to us. If there are some who are unwilling to deny their faith in the only begotten son and so lose their lives, should we not be willing to give our lives in obedience to Christ and his mission? We must. God, give us the grace to live that way, Lord. Give us the grace to faithfully and fully follow you. Thank you, God, for the witness concerning your son, for the water, blood, and the spirit. And now help us, Lord. We just confess that there's all sorts of things that would challenge our obedience to Christ. All sorts of other claims on us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to believe and obey Jesus. If anyone is here who has never repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, I pray that you help them to do it now. To just say in their hearts, God, I've been wrong and you're right. Jesus is the only way that I'll ever be saved, forgiven and given eternal life. I believe that. Give me that. Pray that many would do that in our community and that we would live according to the urgency of the gospel in such precarious times. Help us to be faithful and to always rejoice in the wonderful son that you've given us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.